For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. How are you doing this week? Welcome to our last episode for Series 8. I'm going to take a short break, like the Italians do. You know, everyone's like, in Europe, I'm out of the office for the whole of August. I'm jealous, so I'm going to do it. (laughs) I'm not going anywhere, though. If you still want to talk to me about the podcast, please do. I'll be on Instagram at Mrs. Press. And we will be back with Series 9 in September. And if you miss us, remember there's quite a back catalogue. We've been doing this for seven years. So it's a good time to go back and listen to any episodes you may have missed. Actually, I was going to ask if you could do me a favour. I could really use your help reaching new listeners and just reminding people about Wardrobe Crisis. So if you listen in Apple and you can spare a moment to write us a review, it really helps with the algorithm. If you don't listen in Apple, then you can't review in Spotify, right? But I love it when you share on socials and I'm super grateful to all the people who do that. Thank you. But just, I don't know, text it to a friend, whatever. Tell someone in the pub. (laughs) It all adds up, so thank you. Now to today's gorgeous story, and it is gorgeous. I'm delighted to bring you this interview. It's with one of my favourite Danish designers, Cecilia Barnson. She studied in London at RCA. She interned with John Galliano, no less, and Erdem, and she started her own label in 2015. You may have seen her voluminous and absolutely beautiful, smile-inducing dresses. It's luxury. Cecilia calls it the intersection between couture and ready-to-wear. And it is very high craft. She creates loads of her own textiles using embroidery and smocking, things her grandmother taught her, so nice. And all of this lends her work a certain whimsy. But although it is that, and it is also expensive, it's not untouchable, as you will hear. So Cecilia wears hers on her bike. It's a very Danish approach. I love how she talks about styling it. She wants you to knot it up and jump on a bike and live your life in it, right? She doesn't want it to be this precious, untouchable thing. This conversation was recorded at last season's Copenhagen Fashion Week, which, if you listen, when this one drops, will be in full swing for spring 24. Cecilia and I met when I first started going there years ago, and she's always been a highlight for me. I just love her brain and her her sensitivity, I guess. I love how she looks at the world and also the world she's built in her office with the people around her. And shout out to them because it's just a whole team. It's not just Cecilia. It's all the people in there making this happen. And you really feel it in the clothes, I think. And you'll hear that come out in this interview. Anyway, we talk about how to build a creative business and make it work how she's approaching scale and growth now she has all this opportunity, and what it takes to make it. Determination, for sure. But I think it's also really about having a clear sense of where you want to go and how you treat others. What else? We talk about upcycling precious scraps and how tricky that is. Also, this idea of timelessness in a novelty-obsessed world. Listen out for the bit where she talks about building on what's gone before, rather than just chucking it all out and chasing trends. But ultimately, though, I reckon this is an episode about joy. The pleasure we can find in clothes, even down to the rustling sound of fabric. With all our worries about sustainability, 
this is just something that's easily forgotten why we came to fashion in the first place. So, ready? Let's sit down with Cecilia Bunsen. Bunsen? Yes, that's perfect. <laughs> Cecile Bansen. Yes. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. And thank you very much for welcoming me into your very lovely atmospheric studio. Oh, it's me who's so excited about this. So thank you very much. It's a very, I should say, grateful because it's such a busy time. We're just recording this at the end of Copenhagen Fashion Week. I just crossed paths with the big boss of the Haute Couture Federation. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are in town, people yeah. need you. Yes. It's very special and it's extremely nice to get to show the collection and talk about what we do. So first question, very important. Did you cycle here? No, I walk today. <laughs> do you cycle here? I cycle a lot, yes. Um, and yeah, I mean, I either cycle or walk depending on the headspace, yeah. Now, that seems like a very daft question, but it is yeah. actually a meaningful one because yeah. Copenhagen is, I mean, cycling has been the way of getting around this city mm-hmm. for a hundred years. It's obviously sustainably minded city but everybody cycles yes that's what we do yeah i don't know it's just how we do it i also do it with my son now taking him into nursery and it is just i don't know there's a it's an ease and a comfort to it and and yeah it's i don't think we even really think about it and yet does one have to think about it when wearing a big puffy dress I don't think you need to, but like it has become a lot of the inspiration for the collection because we do have to style the dresses a little bit when we jump on the bike, but we don't want to compromise on on wearing them. So like we always tie either a hair ribbon around or tuck it a little bit into the side. So you create these kind of new beautiful silhouettes while biking. And I really like, I really love it if I'm in town and one of the girls from the team comes back past in their dress and it just fluffies around. And yeah, I think they they have their own. Yeah, aesthetic and universe to them in that sense. I love that more than I can possibly say because you think of the impracticality of volume or a lot of smoking, <laughs> but you're you're saying no, we live our lives this way. It's yeah. fine. Want, We're cycling with kids. Yeah. yeah, but you want I want people to live and love the collection and make it part of their life and make it them themselves and and I think like feeling comfortable in, in the collection is really important and being able to do the, your, your things, your everyday is, yeah, it's part of it. Since this is an audio experience, could you yeah. describe what you are wearing right now? Right now I'm wearing an orange cotton dress with smug details. Um, yeah, it's one of my favorite uh, pieces. It's possible that some people wouldn't know what smocking means if you're into textiles and sewing, yeah. I guess you know, but do you yeah. want to just describe it as a... So smocking for us is a textile technique that we use a lot to fabric manipulate and, and to change the the original nature and bring our DNA into the fabric. It's it's created with elastic thread on the back and it can, you can smock it into a floral motif, a graphic motif, um, and it, it kind of cinch you in. So you have this real comfort, like in the elastic um, and in the pattern cutting, and then it's still soft. I'm giggling because yeah. I said I was going to wear these headphones so I could yeah. hear if there were disturbances. For example, we're in your studio. It's all people yeah. doing important work outside. So yeah. I wanted to know if I could hear them talking. What yeah. I'm actually hearing, which I'm leaving in because it's nice, is the rustle of your <laughs> yes. cotton, which feels taffetary yeah. to the yeah. ear. Yes, I think <laughs> a lot of our fabrics have a sound and it's, I think that's part of the essential experience of also putting it on and and I think especially also 
during the pandemic, like I really felt like this need to dress up for myself and this emotional connection with putting on a dress. And I think the sound and the feel and the comfort of that is is so important. I don't think I've ever had a conversation about the sound of fabric, but it is yeah. a thing, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. They all have like different sounds. Character. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> You've got a very strong aesthetic and a coherent vision. And to my mind, it evolves, but it doesn't waver. Like, you know what you're doing, you know yourself. And I was <laughs> thinking about how it's just been fashion week and every fashion week in every city will deliver you this. Some brands just go randomly trend driven in a way that you didn't expect. And you see things and you go, what is that? Why is it lime green? Why is this fake fur today? Why is this a sharp shoulder when you're not, I'm not expecting that from you? Yeah. I wanted to talk about that because I think trends are, well, they're one of our problems when it comes to sustainability mm. or unsustainability. Yeah. But they're also a bit inescapable, but you're kind of dodging them. Yeah, I think, like, for me, the collections are really being built on instinct and evolution of the collection the season before. And in that sense, we really never have a mood board or like a direction as such. We work with the silhouettes that's already there. We work with our archive, with our fabrics, and that's where our inspiration starts. Um, and I think that kind of allows us to not be affected by like what is happening or like what the current trend is. And you kind of just more have a timeless perspective of what you're doing. Do you get pushback though? Do people say, I mean, I know that if you're talking about, for example, classic tailoring, there are some brands that just, I'm thinking about random Maximara, mm -hmm. you're always going to see a camel coat. Mm -hmm. But I think in your area, there's less of a, maybe you can get away with that less because your peers are definitely sort of swishing around in the trend winds. Yeah, like I, I don't, like for me, I think it's the creative process and I think like we spend a lot of time on the collection and we allow ourselves to to also have the full creative process whether it's a month and a half to develop or manipulate the fabrics and then another month or two to work on the silhouettes and the stand and on the model and and I think it's in the experiments it's in the creativity and in the unknown and in in that process and, and turning your own process on its head that it happens so so you always have newness in the collection, but it's a newness who reflects on what you already do in some way. Mm. Do you think about it deeply or is that just how it evolves? Like as in, I mean, just now you've had big, big deal man from Paris. Mm. You're selling to some of the most important department stores around the world. You show in Paris, you've got this, all these eyes on you. Do you have to think about where you are delivering newness? I, I think for me, also part of me choosing to being show, uh, being based in Copenhagen, like it's it's yeah. my bubble, it's my home, um, and and it's where I'm comfortable creating. And 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 when I'm here, I really step into this world, and my team is like extended family, and it all kind of merged together. And and I really like I feel like I am allowed to step a little bit away from the pressure. The pressure that also do excite me when I then go to Paris and show the collection and I feel like I put myself on the line or if we're doing a pop-up with Dover Street or like somehow Copenhagen and designing out of here allows me a little bit of the best of both worlds. But it, it definitely gives me time to to reflect in the creative process, which I think can be hard. Mm. Yeah. I was Googling <laughs> when were big dresses most popular. Yes. And guess what I found? 
<laughs> made me laugh so much. Amazing. Tell me. It was a Quora uh, feed and top of it was Ugh. 1775. Amazing. Perfect. Because <laughs> I was yeah. thinking, was yeah. it all about yeah. killing Eve and oh, that yeah. moment when everyone yeah. was going on about big dress energy mm-hmm. and then what happens when we move to Y2K and everything's skinny? But no, 1775. Perfect. Amazing. How inspired are you by vintage silhouettes and things like do you look at 1775 no portraiture or whatever I think when it comes to vintage for me it's about the fabrics it's about the techniques it's going to the mills in Italy and pull out like a medlacy from back in the days that only works on a 40 cm loom and then find out how can you actually make this wide enough to work for a dress and yeah so really work with like archival techniques such as, as quilting and like so I think I'm all the way back in the Victorian age just for my fabric references. Um, I read somewhere that your grandmother taught you knitting and embroidery, is that yes. right? Yeah. Yeah, she's a really big inspiration um, of mine. And yeah, I think she taught me the loft for the for the craft. And that used to be what I did with her after school. And I think for me, yeah, that quiet moment with her where I just got to work with my hands, like... That was really special and something I really enjoyed and kept doing lo- longer than loads of my classmates. And What was she called? She was called Hetty. Was she practising these crafts because she loved to do it or was it her work? She was a secretary. Um, it was because she loved to do it and I think because she couldn't help it or it was her, I don't know if you call it day drifting or daydreaming, but like what she used to do. And I think me seeing her doing it, especially like also the crochets and stuff, I was fascinated and like learning it from her and and being able to do something together like that. That was also, yeah, really special. And yeah. Tell us about growing up then. Where were you? Um, I'm born just outside of Copenhagen. I have a family who's always supported me in what I wanted to be. And like when I was, I think, 10 or 12, um, I changed school and went into like a smaller school who had like a more so creative approach and where music and art was a very big part of it. So I think my parents, even though they are like they're in the medical business, both of them, they? Like, they, I think they saw that I needed something else and then that would be part of my identity. And, and I'm really like happy that they and grateful that they've always thought that that to find the way where I could do what mm. I wanted to do um, and my mom had a friend who was a seamstress at the Danish Royal Academy for Design and she in yeah, I got to do my first internship there when I was 12 and oh my gosh you were a kid yes I was a kid and I was just like mood boards everywhere and it was like walking into like wonderland for me and I think from that point there wasn't like there was no turning back because it was just like I saw that that could be your life and and you're living and then afterwards I learned that there's much more to it but like I think that that moment for me was when I really yeah knew that this was it. Is it about making with your hands? I know you do more now and you have to consider yourself as a businesswoman Mm -hmm. now running a big brand but is it about the hand? I think it's about the touch of the hand and the poetry of that and the for me, it's like creative therapy. It's how I either make sense of a collection or how I calm down or like I really enjoy it. And even though the brand is growing, it's it's something that I'm not going to let go of mm-hmm. because it's maybe like my grandma. It still is like my my passion. And yeah. Is she gone? Yeah, unfortunately. I'm sure she'd be proud of you. I hope so. Do you think of her? <laughs> yeah. Look, seeing this, yeah, I mean. Yeah, a little bit. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also once you get children and you like then then the whole all of it starts to yeah, make sense in a different way and, and put perspective into how they have also looked at you when you were that young. 
I always think of craft as the potential for having personality or, um, I mean, there's purpose, but mm-hmm. I was thinking more of it as being a way to communicate. And I was thinking about a lovely interview we did, we'll share a link with yeah. an Australian, Japanese Australian designer called mm-hmm. Akira Isagawa. Mm-hmm. And he talks about his babies. Yeah. And he's so cute when he talks about <laughs> it, but he really feels that, that there's uh, a soul I think he actually probably yeah. used that word yeah. in the work that he does because he does a lot of actually fairly similar to you in terms of the way his brain approaches mm-hmm. this that he rescues fabric he was like I feel bad when my little babies end up in the bin oh, but, like, that <laughs> you you can't, them. but I'm just saying that we keep every scrap I think like there's a value in it and there's a history in it and and that was also the collection you saw at fashion week like the uncle pieces like I think for me they're some of the most special pieces in the collection because they're patched together of so many seasons and and so many like memories you create, like connect to when you created that or what you were trying to say with that or where you were in your life. And then all of that comes together in one dress. And yeah, yeah. you're calling it encore as yeah. in we're back, return. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. you're using collected scraps and offcuts, right, yes. from your own production. Yes. Yeah. So it's all, yeah, leftover fabrics from, yeah, from past seasons that we keep and store and then that we bring, yeah, newness to a new life to or, yeah, and put together. And for me, it's one of the most also creative processes, not just starting from a blank canvas, but working with what you already have and reflect and, and on what you're doing and, and, yeah, putting it together. And, and you create some very surprising things also because... The cuts are odd, and it's actually how we started doing bags because we we thought, with how what are you going to do with all these small scraps? And then it was perfect for making these uh, like soft accessories. Actually, have all the DNA of the dresses in them. So I like how like they, that actually can feed into the creative mm. process as well. I was just looking at your range, which you're about yeah. to show in Paris, and mm-hmm. there is a patchworked tunic. Yeah, yeah, tunic is the word. No. So it's the bodies of the dress at the moment, I think. That's how far we got. It's in the making. <laughs> yeah. But we were talking about, we were going through it before, yeah. talking about how it will change every time you do it because yeah. that's its nature. What size is the scrap? So you've yeah. basically patchworked together lots of different silks, all in mm-hmm. pinks and reds, and then embroidered on the top of them. Yeah. Or yes. smocked on top of them. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. But it's not going to always be uniform. No. I think that's the beauty of the pieces as well. And not two are going to be the same and that you can't control like the process as well. And there's a personality to the process and the garment itself. I think for me, it's that creative process, that experiment that I think is so important. And yeah, is the soul of, of, of what we do. You and I would love the idiosyncrasy of one item looking different to the next, but yeah. the buyer from a store finds that just a headache right because there's no you know the standardization Mm. of fashion is how the system works yes that's why it's complicated in 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 certain ways because you can't show a picture and and it takes a bit more explanation um but i do however feel that people are asking for it more and more so even though it is complicated i think the beauty of the story and the quality of that is really drawing people in um so i hope that it can change and there can be allowed for this um and in a way, it's also like when you receive it, it's like a surprise and it's an experience. And and I think it's again back to this feeling of getting dressed. I feel with some of my dresses when I put them on, like I haven't noticed <laughs> that I could also tie it this way or wear it back to front or like what happens if it comes undone? Oh, actually, that's really pretty. And then I would wear it like that. Or So it's also like that you can keep 
experiencing new ways and also the way you dress it. And, and, and I think also that comes even more with the individuality of each piece as well. And so yeah. do your customers like it? So you just say to your wholesale clients, this is how it is, just have to back me. I think how like does with, that work? Like, I think with the wholesale business is still a very small part of what we do. So it's much more on our own e-com channels that we can can do that and we can tell the stories and we can show the process. It's also the first way that we can do a bit more made to order as well, um, which I think for me at least also allowed to tell us tell the story of what how many hands touch these dresses, how much love does it go into it from from the first skits of the embroidery that go on the fabric to that we send it to the mill and they embroider it and they come back and then it goes on the stand. And then I think, yeah, it works really well mm. in, in that way to also get the appreciation back of the craft and the passion that go into so close, uh, which I think we unfortunately forget sometimes. So much. And actually, we shouldn't talk down to the customer. Why should we presume they can't take it if things are different? Of mm. course they can. Yeah. Just because the system of fast fashion delivers you identical crap mm-hmm. all the time doesn't mean that people don't yearn for something else. No, we like we talk a lot like in the way we style or create the collection or wear it in the studio like about the collections as like everyday couture, but if you really are looking at it these pieces are that because there won't be two that's the same. I was going to yeah. ask you yeah. what is the intersection of couture and ready to wear? So I think for me, like the couture and the love of like craft and rom- romance and and the whole heritage and the story that is behind that way. And then at the same time, making sure that you take the preciousness of that and makes it something you just want to put on every day and make it something that you want to treasure and something that you want to pass on, but that most of all, you just want to love and live in. And I think for me, that's don't want my fashion to be art, even though I'm inspired by it. I really want it to be lived in. And, and I think for that, like Danish furniture design and, and art and craft and that way of we've passed on like pieces, like things I've gone from my grandma or from her, like that's really what I really want to do with my dresses. Hope that people could get that same mm. love for them. And yeah. I always think about Nordic sensibilities yeah. when it comes to sustainability and mm-hmm. caring for the environment, which I do think mm-hmm. is real. But there's something else you said there, which I'd like to know more about, which is Danish design. Yeah, like I think like for me, or like at least also moving back, starting up the brand here, like that was the approach. Like it's both functional. It's something that's part of your living room or your everyday, but it's also something that you treasure, look after so much that you still want to pass it on. And I think that's some of the strengths of interior design. Who are they? Who are those icons? Like, like. For me, like I have a lot of um, porcelain that I've got from my grandma that is all hand-painted, like Royal Copenhagen stuff. Then it can be like, uh, there's the the standard one, like an Anne Jacobsen chair, but it could also be like an Elto stool. Or I also love some of the, like the ceramics or art things that you find that maybe don't have a name from it, but that they connected a memory to and that has been part of, of your growing up. You said when you moved back, I know that you studied at the Royal College of Art in London and Mm -hmm. you graduated your MA in 2008. You worked then, you did internships with some pretty big names, Galliano. Yeah, so actually I did Galliano before London. Oh, did you? Yeah, so I was a a print designer, first an intern and then a print uh, design assistant there for a year and a half. And then at Dior Dior uh, or Galliano? Galliano, Galliano, um, then missed doing... um, doing the whole silhouette like uh, because it was print but for me like being there like I think that's the love of of couture and 
my style before going there was very minimalistic and very Danish. Was and it? I think I got a culture shock. <laughs> Did he give you the theatrics? <laughs> yeah, but I think it was incredible. Like it 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 really challenged me and it's it showed me how much you can push an idea. And and I think having this like real understanding of creativity and pushing ideas to the max and then still the very Danish like functionality, variability first like the combination of those two is also always that balance when we're working on a collection um the right thing in between those two um what was it like working for him it was like i we used to do prints in the kitchens and we painted it all and like there weren't any computers like all was done on photocopy machines and sent out and it was very like hands-on and there was italia at the bottom floor and i think for me one of the guys was like an older guy, and he was the best one in Paris show, uh, cutting siphon on bias. And just like oh, being, cutting chiffon because it's so slippery. Yeah, and yes. Like, and know. like that was his skill. And I think like he was really like, like a granddad for the young ones of us and made sure that we were all right. And, and, but like for me, knowing his craft and that like proudness that also came with it, I think that's something that I've really taken with me as well because you. You're not just creating these collections on your own. You're creating them with so many incredible people. I love that your answer, when I said, what was it like working for Galliano, wasn't about him at all. It was about a person with great skill who he worked with. And I say this because fashion is obsessed with the big name, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) Like, I want to hear the stories and the gossip about Galliano. But in fact... As you say, we might just have that one guy on a pedestal that everybody knows about, but all the hands and people that do the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now I'm going to ask you about another famous person. (laughs) (laughs) Who else did you work for? And then I uh, worked for Erdem in London, which Mm. for me was very special. Like he really grew the company and the time I was there. And he gave me a full understanding of what it means to take your brand from emerging to established. For any listeners who are not familiar with him, give us a... Like, again, a very beautiful, romantic brand um, dedicated to to craft and femininity. Very strong in prints as well. It was, again, like really learning what it takes and what it takes of a team and the the complexity of of things. But, But also, I think for me, the drive of London, the energy of London, like all the talents around you, like the boss and like, I don't know if it's a competitiveness, but you want to do really great at what you're doing and you want to like push your craft and your art and your design as much as, as possible. And I think, yeah. I did a podcast with an amazing woman called Georgina Johnson who wrote a book called The Slow Grind. Mm-hmm. And she talked about how highly pressured and frankly unpleasant some of her internships had been working for some big names, different ones to yours, mm-hmm. and how bullying was endemic, how crazy competitive everything was and how miserable (laughs) it could be but you're telling a story of a different I know everyone every company is different but it's interesting to hear your perspective which was about competition breeding excellence and also just about being delighted by people's skill but I think from like again I think it's some of the things also going back to Denmark and and allowing myself to have the quietness around what I do that I also know that I am still acting on an international scene, like I'm seeing myself very much as part of Paris Fashion Week. And like, I am very lucky to have some very incredible stockers that also show the brand. And and for that, I can't 
like a letter word, be lazy. Like I need to keep pushing myself and challenge myself. But in that challenge, also enjoy the creativity. So it's very much a balance. And I think that's, yeah. But just coming back to your experience in those houses, Mm. you thrived. You liked it. Yeah, it was perfect for the time. And I think it was a right, like I was young and really, I'm still really excited about fashion. You were hungry, you wanted to learn the stuff. Completely, like everything was new and incredible and possible. And you saw all, like, I think I was like a sponge, Mm -hmm. just like taking in as much as I could. But then always knowing that eventually I was, I was going to go, go and do my own thing, but trying to crack when was that going to be? You know, how was that going to be? Um, but like, yeah, I took after Erdem, I took like a year and a half or a year out to also find out where that was going to be and how it was going to be. And yeah. I feel like we have lots of listeners, certainly not all of our listeners are this, but we yeah. do have a lovely community of emerging designers and students and people who want to do what you're doing in terms of, I wish I could have a brand or mm-hmm. I wish I could take my creative vision and turn it into paying the rent, whatever that looks like. I'd like to ask you about your advice on that. You're so gentle and um, not pushy in the way that you come across, but you've got to have some sort of steely determination underneath all this to have built what you've built, right? How do you... My boyfriend says I'm competitive, but that maybe (laughs) is in games. I don't know. Like I have a passion and I have a real drive for making this possible. And I think even more now that I have a team and it's not just about me. There's so many, many wheels ticking because what I do and this kind of responsibility of of that, um, I'm lucky enough to take as a driver and not as a pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, is it yeah. also to do with the fact that you knew what you wanted to make? You've got such a strong vision on this is what I want to put in the world. Like, I think with some of those questions, it's easier to take the things that others says to you. And my little sister has always said to me, oh, you're the luckiest because you never doubted what you wanted to do. Like, never. And she's like, I always knew you would do it because you've never babbled on about anything else. And I think <laughs> I have definitely struggled and it's still really hard in these certain times to, to run a business and get things to add up and outlive your your creative vision but but uh, yeah there's a determination and a, and a drive and a believement that, that it, it that it's possible um i think i'm really happy that i worked before and i think there's a really really big pressure of going out straight out of college and i think we all get educated which is beautiful to be really strong individuals as students and it's all about your final collection and and that pressure of finding out who you want and like like this makes me sound really old, but there wasn't Instagram when I was doing my my final collection. But I'm so happy <laughs> that I didn't have to post about what I was because I was really trying to find out Gosh, who I the was. The freedom of that, yeah. the absence of pressure of having to perform on Instagram was a, nice for you. Yes, like you get to find out who you are, what you want to say. Where like I also taught um, drawings a bit to like make a living when you just start the brand and one of my students said to me but why is this important because I can't post it already it really stuck with me because I was like yeah but that's the whole point like like maybe you should post it and then it's really great to see in two years how great you've been or like I don't know or maybe you shouldn't and it's just for you so I think you need to learn and you need to have just as much skill sets as passion to to do it and you also mentioned before that 
or you alluded to this idea that here, this place in Copenhagen mm. gives a certain space yes. that you wouldn't have if you were just embedded in New York or Paris or London yeah. all the time. Yeah. But I think, like, for me, it's it's always been about the pace of how we develop um, and having the time that it actually takes to develop a collection and, and trying to step a little bit off that pressure of, like, the next collection and they need to overlap. So we do one collection and then we start the next one when that one is done and you have time to reflect on what you just did and, and look at it and make it better. And for me, like, things takes time and it needs to have a have a purpose or a love and like I'm also privileged to be able to to decide that at the moment and to do it that way like we definitely had to run a lot faster when we were smaller as well to get cash flow to happen and and to make sure that you had enough capsules too and all of these where now we can do the stuff that feels mm. a bit more ripe so it's also certain times in your career you can choose certain things I mean there's always this disconnect or not always there's often a disconnect with really creative people and then that business side yeah. that you're not naturally potentially mm. the person who's really wants to be thinking strategy or even sustainability or whatever mm. it is that isn't the making right yeah what do you do put the right people around you I've been very lucky to have the right people around me I think it's big like if you talk advice like finding people who's better at stuff and you and and also accept that they're better at it <laughs> than you so so that you work together but then I think I'm also curious about all of it. And I think the curiosity also is what brings a hold to it all and makes sure that it it does connect across all mm. points. And I think we have this interesting point in the brand's career where we're kind of going from emerging to establish. And even though I feel like we're a really big brand and I feel like being 27 people is is kind of crazy and amazing and I can't believe that I made it to there. I think we're still seeing um, in terms of uh, supply chains, but also in terms of like making the right customer service that it takes more. And, and also in fairness, let's not give the impression to the listener that this is about a huge business with loads of volume. I was just speaking about how many of these might you make and she was saying maybe 200. You know, it's not about... Like, like for us, and that's like a bestseller. So so I yeah. think it's also about actually making sure that the things get out there to live and that you can hit production minimums and you mm. can deliver on time and you can meet your customers and really tell the story um, of the brand. And part of that you can only do with growth. Yeah. And I think that you're also learning. I mean, I don't think growth is a dirty word. I think when we talk about fast fashion's volumes, then yes, we've got a huge problem. But good businesses continuing to thrive, that's something that I want to see more of. Like, I don't know if we should be embarrassed about having ambition to try to be as still purpose-driven and authentic as possible, but just to get bigger within our own sphere. I don't know. I mean, I've had this conversation with Nikolai from Ghani. Yeah. Do you have to say, I, don't, I can't get any bigger because the environment, dot, dot, dot? I don't know. No, but I also Do you think, think like, that? like, I think it's much harder than back in the day to say, like, oh, I just do it because I can't help it, or I just feel like it, or, like, you, you do know that, that there needs to be a sense of purpose behind what you do yeah. or that you need to be conscious of how you're doing it. And and I think what I'm really learning is like there's so many steps in that and there's things I need to learn constantly. And some of those things also take investment. So for me to do better than what I do today, I actually need to grow. And I think that's such a complicated thing for to make sense of in in your, your head, um, the balance between, yeah, 
you're using materials that already exist. We know that's not mm. the only answer for sustainability, yeah. but plugged into the other things that you do, I think mm-hmm. it's really makes sense as the whole. I yeah. know you're working with non-source. I've yeah. been looking at some of the things that you do with your own mm-hmm. offcuts. Yeah. How do you approach that and what what does it look like from a design perspective? Because it's limiting. Is it's, that good? It's Is that constraint more, that you like? No, I think it's just, it's more complicated and in certain ways you need to be even more creative, especially like on the development and the production side of, of things. The more you work with scraps or with offcuts or with upcycling, the more complicated it is because there isn't that much. So you have to patch it in another way or you have to turn your head around it. And yeah, being really creative through all the different part of your of your business. But I also think it's yeah, it's also super rewarding to crack it. So you need to to find it fun to crack yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. But you're also inventing your own fabrics, yes. essentially. Yeah. With the smocking, with the mm. embroidery, you're yeah. turning something into something else with texture. Exactly. And I think that's what also allows us to do upcycling in a in our own way, because we do add the embroidery to it, or we do yeah, smock it, or we patchwork it together. Like we always add a touch to it um, so that it, it sits within the collection and it sits within the universe. Um, yeah. Let's just finish on shows. Yeah. I've been lucky enough to come to many of your shows. Yeah. I remember one in Copenhagen a fierce stomping girls in yes. perfect feminine clouds of yeah. beauty. Yeah. You're about to do Paris. Talk to me a little bit about how you communicate your vision through that format. I mean, the other day you did a showing, but it yeah. was so, it was one of my favourite things, but it was very, um, I want to even say humble. It was just a lovely place with a perfect musician and then you'd shown the pieces very simply hanging up or draped on a chair I think for the creative part or like for example Cecilia who played the music I'm very lucky to have a lot of people that I work with from a very long time she was playing um the cello the cello yeah so like it's people who's like been part of your journey and like also with Frolic and Martin that I work on with the show we've done every show together from the beginning so I think in, in that that kind of continuation of creative collaboration is the same as the collections. Like you add to what you do, you build your universe, you you build that. I don't know if it's a final note or like it's very refined what that show is or what that story is you want to tell that season. But it's such a big part of your universe and it's very sensible. It's the, it's the music, it's the surrounding, it's the clothes, it's the girls. Um, We've done like a lot about um, also the formations of girls and girls together and so how you're not much, just yeah. wear it on your own. And like for me, it's really it's a storytelling point. And it's the time that you stop up and you make sense of that season and, and, and what you want to say and what you have, you have on your heart. But it's also where you put yourself on your line and where this ambitiousness comes out, as you say, like where where you are challenging yourself and you it's. It's it's always a bit nerve wracking, and you want to push yourself and make sure that you you took it as far as you thought, and then challenge your creativity and embrace the experiment. And I think like somehow you also create as like you're both creating it for people who watch it and experience it afterwards. But for me, it's also very much for me and my team. There's something about this unison of creating this together and working on it and preparing and making it come together like those last couple of weeks like there's a real buzz that I think if you took the show out of that 
it wouldn't be there. Like it's an electricity that you can't define that that sparks so much creativity. Um, yeah. Oh, how lovely. Yeah. I should let you go back to Thank this because you. you're doing it in <laughs> yes. a few weeks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for Thank sharing you your much. insights with us. It's been oh, so nice. No, it's been so very lovely. grateful. Thank, Thank you, you very much. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. you because I love you